welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. We are back in our series in the book of Genesis just now. And let me just remind you with a bit of an overview, I think we've got one slide, which just reminds you of the, the story arc, before we get into the, the Jacob and Esau story, of, the, of Genesis as a whole. This is taken from an author, Michael Morales, and, and a bunch of other people who would roughly say this is the story arc of the book of Genesis. Of course, we have been there. In, for, it starts off good with the blessing of creation in all of its abundance. The intimate presence of God symbolized most evidently in the Garden of Eden when everything was ordered rightly in terms of its relationship with each other and the idea of Eden that was going to be extended, this beautiful presence extended throughout the whole world. And then, of course, it moves towards the scene of Adam and Eve in the fall, Genesis 3, where we see the propensity of the first humans in to do what was right in their own eyes. And herein is the definition of the fall and sin that enters into the story arc of Genesis. And then we see a pattern that proliferates in the text of Genesis. This pattern that starts with Adam and Eve, this seeing, this desire and taking, that it becomes a pattern that we see throughout the, the well, Genesis and the Old Testament. We see a pattern of people just seeing and doing what is right and taking. And what they want in their own eyes. Um, David and um, Bathsheba, he sees her, he takes her. Um, Saul sees and takes. Solomon takes mighty chariots that he's told not to do. We see this pattern just proliferate, and in Genesis, it portrays that this has consequences. This leads to strife, this leads to difficulty. And then we have this growing sense in Genesis, this ache of exile. Um, the strife that comes from this pattern and this propensity. And we picked up, if you remember before Christmas, one of the the patterns or themes in the the Hebrew scriptures. There's this pattern of anything that moves east. Now, this should preach well in the West in Glasgow. Anything that moves east is bad and away from God. And the West symbolizes where God's intimate presence was. Amen. And so there's there's this sense of anything east is, is not good in the book of Genesis. And we have this growing exile and the story kind of turns, the arc of the story turns with God's patience and his new initiatives to keep working with this people. Um, New initiatives like, hey, we've got Noah, a new Adam. We have a decreation moment where the floods come up and they say, right, let's start again. And great, we've got a wee scene of Eden. We've got um, Noah planting a garden, a vineyard. And you're like, great. This feels like it's back on track, but then before we know it, Noah has got drunk and it's got spoiled and it's, it's, you know, it's gone off in the wrong direction again. And so we see God's patience in this new initiative to restore, but then in general, it's about stubborn humanity and God's promise to bless. 
which really leaves it with this question that's set up for the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible and the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, which is why it's at the beginning, which says, how will God restore Eden? This place of his intimate presence. So it's presented to us as we come with the scriptures, it's authoritative, infallible word with rugged edges of the Bible, scripture and narrative that we realize, you know, faith is living and breathing and our faith is living and active, not neat and abstract truths. It comes to us in these rugged ages that we are to embrace the, the living God. And so um, here we are, it's just about past four o'clock on Sunday and we're about to go after all of this to Jacob and Esau. So you need to be with me here. You need to lean into this and we're, we need to be up for it. So here's how I want to set this up for us as we come and think about it. And in some ways it's, it's asking the question a bit like from the psalmist where we're called to worship at the start about, if, if this is to the people, if you've been in this place or are in that place where you're stuck in the mud and the mire and you can't see a way forward for your future. So my set up to this as we come to it is a question of, do you have uncertainties and longings for the future that worry you because you feel really out of control or can't see how things will work out for the better? Complicated things, frightening even, uncertainties for a future in the short term or the long term. Are you stuck in the mud and the mire? You think, how is this going to work out? How is this going to turn good again? Well, let's allow the story of Jacob and Esau to uh, speak to us this afternoon. So you'll notice if you want um, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Isaac's getting pretty short shrift. He gets pretty short shrift in the Bible in general. There's a few chapters that says a few things and then it's really on to a lot more made of Jacob and Joseph. And Isaac's getting even shorter shrift in this uh, series because we're just moving on. So there we go, poor Isaac. Um, so we're, we're, we're leaning in today to Jacob and Esau and in, in the series, oh yeah, sorry, the dramatic pause, we are then going to close out the series by looking at the story of Joseph, just as a heads up of how we are getting out of the book of Genesis as well. Um, maybe, uh, I, I, I was a struggle with myself that I'm not ready for this in this part in January, but maybe there will be one sermon at some point we'll return to from Genesis about interpreting the patriarchy, in particular the horrendous violence we see in the text, in particular to women. Um, and, and how do we do it? What do we, how do we read the Bible and make sense of that? For example, you know, when, when Lot, um, the men come and he's trying to protect these messengers and Lot says, look, don't come after these men, have my daughters instead and do what you want with them. And you're like, gee whiz, Lot, shame on you. Or even the the. Ten Commandments, those, we think that transmits through time well and that's solid ground. And, but even in the Ten Commandments, it assumes in the Ten Commandments that women and children are the property of the patriarch. So even there, there's things, but I'm not ready for that sermon and maybe nor are you. So we'll come back to that, maybe. It's very non-committal. Today we are uh, thinking about, and I want to profile the life and time or the complicated life of Jacob and Jacob and Esau. And beginning with the first scene around his name and his birth that we find in Genesis 25. If you remember when Palos um, was speaking from I, uh, Genesis 22 on Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac, he asked us, he drew our attention to, look, 
there's a lot of mixed bag in, in this Bible. The people we think are the heroes, they're, they're a mixed bag. And, and, and that's in my mind as we come to this as well. Is Jacob uh, a good guy or not? A role model or not? And what about poor Esau or stupid Esau? These people are a mixed bag, as we'll find out. From birth, we are told Jacob is a, a trickster, a heel grabber. His name means, most will say, like a supplanter or, or one that follows behind. And somehow from his birth, he was already at it. His twin brother, who went out ahead of him, and he comes behind grasping at his heel. And in his name, certainly we see in his life, he will live up to this grasping, this tricking, and this deceiving. He will do a good job of being true to his name. But even before his birth, um, Rebecca, his mom, knows that there is trouble brewing in her womb with the tussle, as well as life in her womb. The Lord said to her in verse, uh, verse 23 of chapter 25, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, Rebecca. Uh, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And it's shorthand, the, the reader now knows immediately Jacob is the plan for God's, the, the promise of God's blessing. Jacob is the one that will steward be the conduit recipient of God's blessing now of course a Christian reader could rightly just quite quickly refer to the apostle Paul in the New Testament who if you follow this he interprets Genesis 25 through the lens of Malachi 1 Malachi 1 says yet I have loved Jacob Esau I have hated now the apostle Paul makes much of this narrative to point to God's plan of grace. He, one of the theological messages that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament tries to be really clear on is that God's sovereign election for Jacob to carry the blessing was not because he was better in any way. In fact, he was the weaker, second in line, the forgotten one. And, and, and Paul goes to great lengths to say, look, be it know that God does not call people to himself on the basis of their CV, their resume, their background, their ethnicity, it, it, it doesn't work like that. It's a sovereign election of, of grace that um, is magnified in the New Testament. Oh, there's a niche I'm trying not to scratch about Calvinism here. I'll mention it and you can forgive me and talk to me later. You don't need to go where some Calvinists have get to with double predestination. The idea, where, I'm regretting it already, the idea where some are elected to be reprobates, destined for hell, and others are destined for heaven. The, it just, it doesn't need to go like that. I, simple for me, here's the way my mind goes. Think Armageddon, you know, the, like the film, not the movie. Do you know, really simple, like whenever there's chosen ones, even though they're not chosen, I think they pick themselves, but they, they go to be the conduits to save the world. You want to protect and bless them because they, they not so they are just the saved ones, they are the elected ones because they are going to save the world. And there's no way because these people are the elected ones to bring blessing that it means that these other ones are destined for hell. I, I'm just saying that I'm sim that's a simple illustration. There are other options to get to some theology that says this is the only option for this text. So th th therein lies many things, and I'm going to swiftly move on with many regrets. 
So if we just notice there's some things that goes on in the New Testament, but coming from the angle of Genesis itself, there's a correlating point here. Notice the inversion of the firstborn traditional blessing here. I, I say this, this, there's a pattern all over the text that is right before our eyes and is easy to miss. I'm thankful to John Walton and uh, another writer or thinker, Tim Mackey, who's got the Bible Project guy for pointing this out so clearly. In the ancient Near East, there was a custom that is well known of the firstborn receiving the birthright and the blessing, the inheritance in the culture of patriarchy. So they would get a double inheritance of land, money, a blessing that would be theirs just by being the eldest, the firstborn son. And there was a bunch of reasons for this, not all bad in the ancient agricultural society that meant that that was the case. However, there's an inversion of that and the reader should note that it's not just here in Jacob and Esau. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, it was Abel, the younger, that's blessing was um, deemed, sacrifice was pleasing to God. Other commentators point out Abraham was not the firstborn from Terah. It's a little harder to track. Isaac was not the firstborn. It was Ishmael. Noah's sons, if you look at the order when they're listed, they don't list them in the name of the eldest first, which is interesting. Then, of course, we have Jacob, um, the younger one, um, the, the blessing over Esau. And then when you start to see that pattern, you see it everywhere. The obvious ones, the easy ones, of course, are King David. When we just bring out all the brothers, the good-looking chaps, they come out, and then they go for the little runt in the field, and they bring him in, and he's the chosen one. And even Samuel, the prophet who anoints David the king, if you remember his mother, Hannah, she was struggling to have children, and um, her husband had already had children through other wives. And again, we find this pattern is suddenly before our eyes of an inversion of the ones that society, the, the, the structure, if you like, that was deemed uh, the norm is getting subverted. There's something different going on in this text. The first will be last and the last will be first. And something different to the power structure, something upside down will occur. And there's a clue right, right before our very eyes that there's something upside down that will occur in this plan of God's salvation. So there's already quite a lot going on. And it's just his name and, and his birth in the story of Jacob and Esau. So now we go to this, this section in, in Genesis 27, the scene where Jacob just really gets at the real main task of stealing and uh, tricking to get the, the blessing from his father, Isaac. I feel so culturally relevant, by the way, talking about two brothers that aren't, you know, at odds, <laughs> battling against each other. I don't know who the bigger jerk is. Is it Jacob or Esau? Um, one commentator, John Goldengate, he says uh, this, deceiving Jacob or feckless um, Esau. It's hard to know who the bigger jerk is. Quick depiction of Esau. I was describing this to a neighbor who's a redhead, and he says, redheads in, in any culture, they always get it hard. Um, but redheads never get it easy, and he, he sells his birthright for a bowl of red lentil stew. And, and, it, and it's, he's got this stupidity or joke or sarcasm, so I'm going to die unless I get, and he comes in from his hunt, and he, he gives it all away. 
And he's described as this red, hairy, stupid, impetuous, callous, ill-judged character in the account of Genesis. Now, in all of this scene of um, Isaac and um, his two sons and his deception, the music, if it was a, not musical, but a film, would creep in here with illusions that would make you think, oh, back to Genesis 3 and the fall. Remember in Genesis, well, the promise was you're blind and your eyes will be opened. Well, here we have blind Isaac in verse 1. And here we have taking of the wrong food. And Jacob in this narrative is snake-like trickery, sneaking around. And we have the woman, Rebecca here, kind of orchestrating in, sorry, I looked at Rebecca as I said that. It's not this Rebecca. <laughs> it's just unfortunate. Um, Rebecca instructing and leading in the deception in verses five to 10. And so there's a sense here of a look back or read back to the fall. And you might say, not everything is good and of God in the scriptures as we read them. And yet, God's sovereign plan of salvation is unfolding before our very eyes. Ambiguity reigns in this story. Why can't there be two blessings like there was before with Isaac and Ishmael? Shouldn't we feel some sympathy for Esau? You know, losing his birthright? with his mother ganging up against him to, you know, to orchestrate things against him? Or is he just short-sighted and foolish? But I, I can't help but think, gee, when your mother orchestrates something against you, that's rough. But Jacob does it. And he does the hairy arm thing. He does the thing where he convinces his father, or his father goes along with it anyway. And Jacob lives up to him and he receives, grabs, or steals the blessing that was strangely enough already ordained for him and a whole bunch of trouble ensues and strife that works itself out in the chapters that lie ahead and so the narrative moves forward in the chapters after chapter 27 with Jacob fleeing into his own kind of exile, which is interesting. For 20 years, he's away from the land of his, of his father um, in, in a, his own mini exile. And he has a tumultuous journey as he sets out to try and find a suitable wife, eventually from his uncle Laban, um, in whom the, the character Laban is, is where Jacob is like, he kind of meets his own match. Somebody who knows the dark arts and can match him and does the manipulation thing. Says, you want um, Rachel? Yeah, you can have her. Not quite yet. There's Leah. Now give me another 10 years. And, and, and the two of them are, are at it. And you see this sense of just strife and uh, standoff. And, and Jacob does, it serves his time and, and waits for Rachel. And then there's this, um, yeah, chapter 30 makes it clear Jacob wastes no time in producing a family through different women all the sons are born um, and then he gets he, he gets to a point where God actually says to him Jacob I want to work and bless you and through you and then he tells him to go back to his origin where Abraham was and, and back to his home 
And he is fearful, is fraught with strife. Is, is, he go, is Esau going to have his way? After all, we know Esau's intent, which was to kill him. So there, there, there's, a, there's a lot going on here and a lot at stake. And it's on this way back that we reach this final scene that I want to pick up in the complicated life of Jacob, where Jacob has this encounter that becomes known as Jacob wrestling with God, or an emissary of God, or angel of God, but to all intents and purposes, Jacob understands wrestling with God. And incidentally, here is the point where we get the name change, where his name changed from Jacob to Israel. Israel meaning one who struggles, who wrestles with God. He's the father of a nation, which is an incredible moment when you think about the pivot of the history of, of our world. Jacob wrestles with God in the scene and, and gets this name change. And I guess it, the question comes to my mind, is this, is this a high point in the career of Jacob where Jacob wrestles with God. Is, is that what we're meant to conclude? He's not all bad. It, I mean, after all, it is impressive. That in the, he's as foolhardy and uh, determined as he is a trickster to actually wrestle with God and not die and, and still come, come out with something. And I don't know how you... I, I, I've, there's a healthy image in there. That is, I've really enjoyed that as an image of something about a relationship with God that means something to me or even sometimes a relationship to the Bible of wrestling and in a healthy way wrestling with God with our doubts, our fears, with our, you know, the things that we just don't get. Uh, it's a really helpful reading that I still treasure. But I also think there's, there, there are other ways and other angles to read the story that we mustn't miss. And Moving away from just one angle on that, let me emphasize another way of reading this little episode where Jacob wrestles with God, which I think takes us back again to the pattern and the, the demeanor of Jacob's entire life. We have this oddity and tension of a sovereign plan declared for by Jacob to be the conduit of God's blessing, to multiply and light up the skies with being a blessing to the nations. And yet the recipient of the blessing is found flapping, driving, cheating, fight, fighting to get what God already wants to give him. And I love how some scholars have framed this uh, scene, this whole scene of, of Jacob wrestling with God. Somebody put it like this, what happens when an immovable object of stubborn humanity, i.e. Jacob, meets the immovable object of the loving kindness and mercy of the Yahweh God? What happens when that comes together? I mean, of course, God could wipe him out without breaking a sweat. Of course, there could have been another way. But this God so full of his loving kindness and mercy, allows Jacob to live, verse 30, he was spared in this encounter. And somehow in this wrestling with, uh, with God in this scene, Jacob comes out alive and in some ways on top. But importantly then in the text, God or the angel wounds Jacob. Where does he wound him? 
Now, this is where your Sunday school teacher might not have told you it like this, but where every man can appreciate how painful this can be. He is, he is touched, let's call it a punch, because it dislocates his hip in, let's call it the loin region. So here's what you can take from this angle of the story. Jacob needs to be wounded as well as healed. And what is happening potentially in this story is that the angel of God wounds him in the place or where he has control of his destiny, the fertility, the promise, and wounds him to the point where no longer can he depend on himself to be the custodian of the blessing, but become entirely dependent upon God. He has been injured to the point he now limps and it's been taken away from him. And some would even point to the fact that only one child is born after this encounter, if you follow me, and it's Benjamin. And arguably, Benjamin could have already been, I was going to say in the oven, but that's not the right sentence, but you get what I mean. And so there's a picture here of this wrestling of actually uh, somebody who God wanted to work through and bless and somebody who just struggled to receive and just wanted to do things on their own terms. And there we, in some senses, have the complicated life of Jacob. And it makes me go like, families are complicated things, full stop. In the Bible, in real life, in everywhere, the Bible is real life, by the way, but you know what I mean. Before I tell you some good news, let me ask you, do you see some of the weaknesses of Jacob in your own life? Maybe not the excesses of cheating and stealing and all of that, but do you see some of the less blatant deception and the striving and grabbing of things we long for, we need and we want and we, we have to go after, obsess over, and sometimes get into an all-consuming state that moves us away from the sort of person God wants us to be. The person looking for a new job, something more fulfilling and life-giving job, has a worthy pursuit. But when it leads into a frantic stressing and striving and compromising of our faith. Now, this does not call for a passivity. We are called to action as Christians. But we know there is a world of difference of actions from somebody flapping and fighting to get what they want. There's a difference of somebody, think of a meeting, somebody flapping and fighting to get what they want versus somebody who is in a state that is operating from a place of anchored in trust. It leads to a different sort of action. If only Jacob could have heard Isaiah's words that we can hear in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and in trust is your strength. But Jacob would have none of it. Nor would Israel for that matter, mostly in Isaiah's time. But the good news for us is we do not have to be like Jacob. We definitely don't have to be like Esau. We don't have to be like either of them. We can instead and anticipate and watch God's goodness unfold in our lives according to his promise to bless. Not all things go as we expect, far from it. But yes, God will be faithful and has, has declared that his blessing will flow. His intimate presence will flow. His bountiful provision will flow. 
And let me, let me just draw a line squarely from the Old Testament and this story to the New Testament. Aligned to, to Christ, who is of the same line and family that we have just read about in the Old Testament. Aligned to one who would steward the blessing of God authentically. One who would not fight for his own rights, but freely give up his power and his rights. One who in the garden would pray, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. Who would proclaim seeking first the kingdom, not of his own doing, but seeking his Father's will. One who would pray to his Father. One who would operate out of a deep place of trust in his Father. Trusting in his Father's ways, trusting in his Father's timings. And Jesus would be the true Jacob, the true Israel in, this, in the ultimate conclusion of this story. In other words, this is not just a, can you see yourself in the story of Jacob with all that striving and angst that just gets up. It's saying in the New Testament, through the Messiah Jesus, there is another way to live. It's not a perfect way, it's not an easy way to live, but those who by faith are attached to Jesus learn to grow and live like this. They become a blessing to those around them when they live out of a place of deep trust through which the fruit of the Spirit flows, through which a quiet, non-anxious, truthful community full of life, light in their daily lives. We are deeply invited this afternoon to take the complicated things, the things that we're fearful of for the future, the things that are out with our control. We are deeply invited into a relationship of trust, trust in the Father who has got your future. Trust in the Father that you do not need to fight, steal, and work yourself up into a state more like Jacob. The invitation is to come into the quiet way and become more like Jesus. Trusting in ultimately the journey. For me, I was thinking, but where does this land? Ultimately, for me, there's something about a journey, a change from trusting in specific outcomes, though I pray for specific outcomes, to just sometimes those things don't come to be, but trusting ultimately in a journey that takes us to where God wants us to be. And as we end, here's an invitation to, um, through the lens of Romans 12 by Eugene Peterson, as an invitation to gather every area of our lives afresh this afternoon, to, to hear the, the living God say, look, don't come in here and just listen to this. He wants you to change a state. He wants you to live out of a different way for the very challenges that are real. And, and Eugene Peterson, let's hear this as entrusting our whole life again to God. And what's the change he will bring? So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. 
you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Will we trust him today? With God's spirit help, may we say yes. Let's pray together. Father, we began with a call to worship the God who lifts us out of the mud and the mire. How we need you, how we need your loving arms to once again come and lift us when we get stuck in striving, in acting in ways we know is ultimately destructive and non-productive. And hearing an invitation that feels sometimes familiar and, and right, but still far away, God, a carefree life, a life where we trust you, a life where we can entrust and lay down. God, these things can be hard, but remind us that you offer life. Remind us of your abundance. Remind us that in Christ, you have shown us the extent of your love. How will you not also give us all things? Overwhelm us afresh with conviction and a faith that means business, that we put our trust in you for your glory. Amen. Let's worship together.